if you want to make a sermon go viral on, on the internet, all you need to do is title it what the Bible says about the Israel-Hamas war or 10 reasons why Joe Biden is the beast of revelation. And for the people who don't click on that one, you just make a few tweaks, change the thumbnail, and re-upload it as 10 reasons why Donald Trump is a beast of revelation. Then you get everybody. And I'm asking, why are Christians listening to this? How did this ever end up in, in pulpits? How does this ever uh, take the attention of God's people who are supposed to be focused on the word of God? It, it, is, it is when fluff and human opinion take center stage in our worship that we are led astray and, 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 and errors seep into the church and nobody notices. Whether you're a Christian or not, nobody wants a dysfunctional church. And while the decline and defection of many churches in our uh, culture today may feel like new, may feel like this is uh, something recent, uh, it is a problem that was described and, uh, and, and made, uh, made aware for people to to see all the way back in New Testament times, and the prescriptions were, were laid out very clearly there. This series looks at Paul's advice to Timothy about how to steer the church through dangerous waters. And this morning, uh, message, we're talking about our need for truth over speculation. Now, over the last five years, they say that some 40,000 people have died in Canada due to the opioid crisis. And you have to ask at some point, how did we get here? Well, uh, a, a journalist by the name of Sam Quinones uh, wrote in his book, Dreamland, that there was one paragraph that appeared in a letter uh, to the New England Journal of Medicine that he believes started the whole ball rolling. Before 1980, doctors were very cautious about prescribing narcotics. Uh, the prevailing thinking was highly addictive, so you prescribe as little as, can, as little as you can for as short a period as you can. But uh, with one, uh, one, a one-paragraph letter submitted by two doctors to New England Journal of Medicine, uh, that thinking began to change. Their letter stated that in their research of some 12,000 patients in a Boston hospital before 1979, only four of those who were treated with opiates became addicted. Now, they didn't mention any other details. They didn't say uh, how long, how much. Uh, they didn't give any of the circumstances. It was just a soundbite. It was just uh, a paragraph that, for many people, they wanted it to be true. And that paragraph got cited again and again and again and ended up shifting the thinking of uh, doctors uh, and, and, and people in the medical profession about just how potentially uh, addictive opioids could really be. Something similar has happened with the church. Christianity is often uh, being treated with the same level of scrutiny. Little sound bites, 
sticking into people's minds without Christians doing an adequate job of looking to the sources, our scriptures, uh, confirming that what is being said is actually uh, the truth from God and the church is led astray. If the pastor's got a Bible, we assume that what's being said must be biblical. But too often it's not. And it is in those situations that our thinking can be altered and we start walking in a different direction, both as Christians and also corporately as a church, and nobody notices. It is those, those times when we are, we are forced to ask those difficult questions of ourselves. We, we want these things to be true, and so often we don't question, and we, 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 ask, we think to ourselves, if I, like this, if I like the sound of what I'm hearing, what could go wrong? Well, ask those doctors what could go wrong. Ask the doctors who didn't read the fine print, who didn't ask the follow-up questions, who didn't go to the sources, and we, we find ourselves in uh, this crisis right now that people are working hard to try to reverse. We want to be a, a, a church, a gathering of people who are not led astray when those, uh, when, when those winds of doctrinal change come. And yet we need God's help as we do. Uh, we want to understand uh, what we are hearing, and to be able to uh, discern from, from the scriptures whether this is truth or error. And today's passage in 1 Timothy gives us a start of how we can be more discerning as, uh, as Christians, how we can uh, not be tossed to and fro when we find these winds of uh, doctrinal change coming. So turn with me, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I'll read from verses 1 to 11. In the Black Church Bible, it's on the rack under the seat in front of you. It's on page 932. 1 Timothy 1 to 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. This is the word of God. 
Now, this passage gives us three principles to help us this morning. And the first is this, that fluff and human opinion destroy the church. We all have a tendency to stray off topic. And as Christians, we have a tendency to stray off the book, to, 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 to swerve away from the teachings of the Bible. And we are attracted and distracted by other things that get in the way. And it is fluff and human opinion that destroy the church. Now, most of you don't write a lot of letters. And so I, I want you to just take note of how Paul writes his letter, how he opens his letter to Timothy. Uh, in a time where dear Mr. Smith has been replaced with bruh or something like that, uh, the, the, the opening that Paul gives to Timoth Timothy here feels a little, little jarring. Uh, look, for instance, uh, he, Paul starts with his name, but then he goes straight to his title. Does he have to remind him that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus? Does he have to spell out, this is by command of God? And when he says to Timothy, my child, tr true child in the faith, is he talking down to him? Is he putting him in his place? Is this condescending? All of these things are intended to communicate a seriousness. There, there is an urgency and a weight that is being given to the teaching of God, and he wants Timothy to feel this. Paul and Timothy were colleagues. They had labored together in ministry. They were close. They were friends. But in starting the letter like this, he wants to communicate a, a sense of, of weight, of the sacredness of these truths that he is speaking about, and he's, he, he needs to do this and open his letter in this way, to communicate that in a way that just saying dude or, or something like that would not have adequately expressed. And so it's a reminder to us that when we are looking to the word of God and we are speaking about the things of God, that there is a proper uh, weight that we should be giving. We recognize that we are dealing with sacred things and we treat them uh, with the, the seriousness that they deserve. Now, Paul had labored in the city of Ephesus for three years, and then he had moved on. Some four years have passed at this point, and there were serious dangers that were affecting the church. Uh, when you get down to verse 19, he says, some have made shipwreck of their faith. By chapter 5, verse 15, he says, some have already strayed after Satan, and we're facing the exact same challenges today. We are seeing uh, people turn away from the truth of God. We are seeing entire churches defect from uh, the truth of God. And so in verses 3 and 4, Paul reminds Timothy what his task is. He says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine." nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, there are lots of things to do as a pastor. Uh, there are uh, people that need, need prayer. There are people that need help. There are things to do. There, there, there are all kinds of things that are behind the scenes that nobody else is, 
either sees or is available to, to handle, and so you just end up doing them. And yet it's easy to get distracted by those things. It's easy to, 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 to get your time taken up by those things, uh, but here he's reminding him of the task. You have to be a doctrinal watchdog. You have to protect what's most precious, and what's most precious is the truth of God and the word of God. That's a pastor's job. But all of you have a role in that as well. You have a role in that in that it's your job to welcome this ministry week by week. When, when you come on a Sunday morning, it's your job to lean in, hoping that I will convince you from the scriptures of some area of your life, some area of your thinking that is off base. And so when you come on a Sunday morning, part of, part of the task is for you to be listening. And when I call a foul ball, first you look to the scripture, first you want to see, is, is what he is saying actually what God is saying? And if it is, and if that foul ball is true in your life, then you receive it with a recognition that, that this, this is urgent stuff. This is, this is sacred business. I, I need to respond. I need to change. I, I need to give uh, the, the weight to God's word that it deserves. Now, that's not everything, but it's a big part of what we're doing here week by week. But you've got another job as well. How do you think that a church gets to the point where people are regularly being influenced by those who are teaching myths, uh, endless genealogies going on about speculations, human opinion. How do you think that takes place in a church? It's easy, right? Somebody starts teaching those things and nobody says anything. Nobody does anything about it. And, and so one of the, the other jobs that you have as a, a follower of Jesus Christ is to ask the question week by week when you hear what I am teaching. That's why I ask you to open your Bibles. I, I'm asking you to ask the question, is what he's saying what this passage is saying? Is what I'm listening to the word of God? And, and if it's not, you reject it. Now, that doesn't, that doesn't just go for what you hear from me, but it, hear, it, it also goes to the things that you give yourself to during the week. Uh, think of the posts that you read, the, the videos that you watch, uh, the podcasts you listen to. Uh, to. To what extent have you submitted them to the test of the word of God? Are, are you asking the question, is this what God has said? Or, or am I just listening to somebody's speculation? This week, just for fun, I don't know why I did this. I googled the phrase Enneagram ser sermon series. Now, uh, Enneagram is a personality assessment that may maybe you like it, maybe you don't. It, it is a profile that people do ask questions and divide up into different, different ways of assessing human behavior. If you love it, that's, that's fine. If you hate it, that's fine as well. But surely we can all agree that a sermon based on the Enneagram is, really doesn't have a place in God's church. It, it, 
I, I haven't seen any chapters dealing with Enneagrams, let alone a 10-part sermon series. And yet, you can see all kinds of them. And I, I'm asking the question, why are we listening to that? Why, why, how, how did that take uh, central place in the gathering of God's people? I, you, you don't have to look too hard to find other examples of this, right? If you want to make a sermon go viral on, on the internet, all you need to do is title it, What the Bible Says About the Israel-Hamas War, or 10 Reasons Why Joe Biden is the Beast of Revelation. And for the people who don't click on that one, you just make a few tweaks, change the thumbnail, and re-upload it as 10 reasons why Donald Trump is a beast of revelation. Then you get everybody. And I'm asking, why are Christians listening to this? How did this ever end up in, in pulpits? How does this ever uh, take the attention of God's people who are supposed to be focused on the word of God? It, it, is, it is when... Fluff and human opinion take center stage in our worship that we are led astray and, and, and errors seep into the church and nobody notices. If you care about your own faith, if you care about your children's faith, if you care about this church and the future of the church, then we need to care about the truth. We need to care about doctrine. We need to care about the scriptures. Now in verse 7, uh, we get a little more insight about who these people were. They were uh, people who wanted to be, to be known and recognized as teachers of the law. They were, putting, uh, they were putting themselves forward as experts, people who were to be recognized, people who were uh, to be uh, sought after as teachers. They were telling made-up stories about minor figures in Old, Ten Old Testament genealogies and going on and on about things that aren't in the text. And because they were putting themselves forwards as teachers of the law, teachers of the Old Testament, Paul goes on to set them straight about the right and wrong uses of the law. And that's the next principle. The law can convict the complacent. It draws a line where people want to blur lines. It makes clear what people would prefer to have as fuzzy. The law can convict the complacent. Now, Paul wrote this letter to Timothy in about AD 64-65. So several decades have passed since uh, the founding of, of uh, the church at Pentecost, and uh, the New Testament was still being written. So you had, you had uh, the, the body of the Old Testament uh, scriptures, and uh, slowly that was being added to. What they, what they had was the Old Testament, and here it's called the law. Since there were some who were making themselves out to be experts and teaching it, uh, Paul says in verse 8, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So he's saying there's a right way and a wrong way to read the Old Testament scriptures. Going into minutia of minor characters and genealogies that are nowhere else spelled out in scripture uh, and, and distracting people from the central truths of God, 
that is the wrong way to teach the Old Testament. That is, that is distracting people from the truth. That is putting forward human ideas, made up stories, and passing them off as God's truth. In verse 9, he says, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless. And then he goes on to give a long list of lawless people, uh, people who are offside with God. And his point is, if you're going to teach the Old Testament, if you want to return to the law and, and, and teach that to people, one of the things that you can do, instead of pointing out the minutia of, of genealogies and people whose stories aren't otherwise described in Scripture, one of the things you can do is draw those lines that, that Scripture draws on human behavior and show people that they need the grace of God. Show people how lost they are. Show people where God has drawn uh, these lines between uh, truth and, and error. Make it clear how far short of God's standards they've fallen. To do that, he's going to give, first of all, three pairs of, uh, of people in rebellion against God. He gives the lawless and the disobedient, the ungodly and sinners, and the unholy and profane. But for most people, that's too abstract. Unless you spell it out for me, I'm not going to put myself in the category of, uh, of godless or sinner or unholy. Uh, I'm, I'm, like you, most people, we figure that we're a good person. And so he go, moves on from those general categories, and now he's going to spell out, well, what are you talking about? What do you mean? And he will walk through some of the Ten Commandments and he will give application of them. For instance, the fifth commandment, honor your, uh, honor your parents. Then he calls out those who strike their fathers and mothers. Uh, the sixth commandment, not, not to murder. So he calls out murder. God has drawn a very clear line about that. Uh, then uh, the seventh commandment says not to commit adultery. So then he turns to this whole area of sexual sin. The problem is, every generation tries to re redefine the terms, tries to re re reinvent where the line is supposed to go. And so uh, he moves there from that general statement of sexual sin, and he gives an example of one that was uh, very much accepted in the Roman culture of his day. And uh, he, he says, as an example, uh, men who practice homosexuality. Now, in case you think he's being one-sided here, he has just listed sexual immorality, which was a term that included anything related to uh, sex outside of a committed uh, marriage between a man and a woman. So uh, he, he has already uh, dealt with the uh, many different, different forms on a general basis. Now he just narrows in on one specific. He'll go on to list sins that our culture uh, is, agrees are very evil, uh, like enslavers, who are basically human traffickers. Uh, he'll also mention uh, those who are liars and perjurers. And in other periods of history, when enslaving people in our culture, uh, when uh, taking people by force and forcing them into slavery, 
when the, law, the, the lines were being blurred on that issue, scriptures like this helped to draw a line, helped to convict people uh, that what they were doing was wrong. But in our culture today, the battle is all about sexuality. We want to do what we want, and we don't want God involved. And what Paul's saying is, if the people who are teaching the Bible are speculating about, uh, about things that aren't in the text, are putting forth human opinion as, uh, as nice stories that don't have anything to do with God's word, then as people are listening to those man-made stories, uh, people will redraw the lines of morality to justify their sin, and no one will notice. There will be this shift in the people's morality because they're just not hearing enough of the word of God. Too much human opinion, too much psychology, too many thoughts and ideas, too little God's words. And as a result, people are led astray and the, the, the decisions of the people of God no longer come in submission to the word of God. And that's exactly what we've seen in our generation. Churches condone what the Bible explicitly forbids, and nobody notices because the Bible just isn't that prominent anymore. People aren't reading it. Churches aren't preaching it. And, and, and so people can begin to put forward other ideas on the basis of other authority, and people will accept it because we want it to be true like those doctors who read a little paragraph in the New England Journal of Medicine, they want, who doesn't want there to be a safe way to treat people with pain? Of course we do. And if there's a financial incentive for you, all the better. Well, the same thing is happening when people are listening to uh, false ideas and redefinitions of morality. Luke Timothy Johnson is a progressive New Testament scholar. And he is shockingly, in one sense, is surprisingly honest. L listen to what he says. I think it is important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority? We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience thousands of others have witnessed to, which, which tells us that to claim our own sexual orientation is in fact to accept the way in which God has created us. He has explicitly stated, we have shifted from rooting our ideas, our beliefs, and our decisions from the word of God, and we will now root it in our own experience. The church falls off the rails when human experiences replaces God's word as the basis of our authority. We, we go astray. We, we end up in the wrong place. We need the commands of scripture to convict us when we're tempted to cross the line. And you know, we are often tempted to cross the line. We need those guardrails. Lose that, and you've lost the voice of God. You've lost the presence of God, not only in your own life, but in 
your church. But that's not the whole story. Because while the law can convict the complacent, once you've been confronted by your own denial and dealt with it and responded to it, then you need something else. You need something more. And what you see in this passage is that only the gospel can transform the, the convicted. If you're going to grow in a relationship with God, you need more than just rules about what not to do. You, you, need, you need that, but you need more than that. You need Jesus. You need a daily experience of his grace in your life. Only the gospel can transform the convicted. Now, if you're reading today's passage on your own, sitting at home, reading through this, you'd probably be attracted to the, the, the lists of different categories of sin. You'd probably focus on, you know, there's some, there's some false teaching going on. I gotta, you know, you'd, you'd notice all of that because it's, it's, it's prominent and it's on the surface. But did you notice what it says in verse 9? Paul says, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless. What does he mean by saying the law is not laid down for the just? The just are, are, are those who've been justified through faith in Jesus. The just are those who have been confronted by their sin, who have who've owned that, repented, and put their trust in Jesus and, and received his forgiveness. He's saying the law isn't laid down for them. What is, why is he saying that? It's saying that they need something more than the law. Once you're convicted, more rules aren't the answer. Just, just getting a longer list isn't the way that you grow in the Christian life. You need the gospel. And so that's why he ties uh, his message together as he does in verse 11. A, a believer's main need isn't just to stop doing the things that God says are wrong. Verse 11 calls us to live in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. The law told us how we had rebelled against God. The gospel tells us how Jesus died for rebels. The, the law told us how sin condemned us. The gospel tells us how Jesus took our condemnation upon us so that we could be freed from it. The law teaches us how sin separates us from God. The gospel teaches us how Jesus' death on the cross calls us near, brings us near to the presence of God. The gospel is kryptonite to Satan because Satan's main tools are shame and fear, and the gospel destroys both of them. And it's what we need to grow. It's what we need to hear. It's what we need to focus on. It's what we need to give ourselves to. Not at the exclusion of the other, but, but it, it, it is a, a Christian's focus. Christians still read the law, but we read it through a gospel lens. We don't read it with despair over how far we've fallen short. We read it with gratefulness and hope, knowing how much Jesus has forgiven us. And while the law majored on telling us what not to do, the gospel goes 
so much farther in its positive vision of the Christian life. Repenting of our sins, we're called to follow a Savior who loves his enemies, who gave his life for them. We're called to follow in his footsteps. We're called to imitate his example of sacrifice. As Paul summarizes in verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Today, people don't want that. Today, people want love that's hot regardless of whether it's pure. Today, we want love that's free and don't want to pay much attention to our conscience. Today, we want love without God, without faith, because we're convinced that we know better. We think we've got love figured out. And we keep making a mess of it. We, we keep turning what God has created as good and turning it into evil, making a, a disaster of the good gift that he's provided. And Jesus can change that. There is hope in him to transform that. The problems Timothy was facing are the problems we're facing today. Fluff and human opinion are destroying the church. They're destroying Christians' lives. People are straying from the church. People are straying from the truth, and churches are losing their way. And we we need to do better. We need to do better at at guarding the truth, at valuing the truth, at lifting up the truth, and responding to the truth. So be a watchdog for it. Fill your mind and your home with the scriptures. Give attention to the word of God and regularly ask yourself, is what I'm hearing the word of God or is this just human opinion? Am am I filling myself with with people's ideas, with their speculation and stories or am, am I filling my mind with the word of God? Because it is the scriptures that transform us. It is there that we have power from God. If you're here this morning trying to blur the lines that God's word makes clear, hear the warnings that God gives us. Respond to him while you have the opportunity. Because he gives us those warnings, he draws those lines for our protection. To to, to save us and to rescue us from the decisions that we would otherwise make. There's a God who wants you to turn to him for life. And if you have repented of your sins, if you have heard the call of God and responded in a way that you have owned your sins and you're walking in a different direction now, then you need more than just more rules. You need the gospel. You need a savior and you need to focus your mind on that savior. Give yourself to him Fill yourself with him. As the scripture says, it is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. And so let that grace motivate you to follow after him, to pursue him, and to honor him. Let God's grace do its work in you as you pattern yourself after the life of Jesus. And may God's spirit meet you there as you pursue him and seek to glorify his name. Let's look to him now in prayer.
Oh, Father in heaven, there's so much at stake today. The life of your church, the life of your people, a generation growing up in our midst, children, teens, young adults, influenced by a, a, a world that is in opposition to you. And so we pray that you would speak and we pray that you would speak powerfully. We pray that the word of God would come with weight, with your authority, and that we would be transformed by it. Forgive us, Father, for times where we have given ourselves to Christian fluff, where we've been distracted by human opinion, where we have failed to give the weight and authority to your word that it's due. Father, fix our eyes on Jesus. May we enter into the weight of his glory. May his love and grace towards us. Sinners though we are, fallen as we are, yet redeemed by his love. Move us, Father, in gratefulness to follow after him. For we ask you in Jesus' name.